0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
0: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Angie, and today I will be talking with a world-renowned coral expert, Dr. David Vaughn, all about the secret lives of corals. Dr. Vaughn is a scientist that has been involved in aqua- aquaculture research and development for over 45 years. He has worked at the Harbor Branch Ocean Graphic Institute and was the executive director of the Moat Marine Laboratory in the Florida Keys, where he started a critical coral restoration program and is well known for developing a new technology called microfragmentation, which we'll be talking about today. Dr. Vaughn is a total coral rock star, and I'm having a fangirl moment because his his background is just so incredible. And currently he has founded. A nonprofit called Plant a Million Corals, which is helping to globally scale coral restoration to help save corals and our oceans. And most importantly, Dr. Vaughn is the author of a new book called The Secret Lives of Corals, Sex, War, and Rocks That Don't Roll. It was a riveting read and I'm excited to talk about it today. And I just want to welcome Dr. Vaughn here. Are you there? Yes, I
0: am, Angie. Thanks for having me on.
1: Oh, it's such a pleasure. I I I as somebody who studies mammals, these corals are just so secretive and so fascinating to me that the book was a real page turner and it opened my eyes about their unique physiology, their behavior, and of course how important they are for the oceans and, and for us for us humans and so we're going to touch on that today as well and I'm just really excited to uh have your expertise uh on the podcast and sharing your love and passion for corals so it's just it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a fun one. I'm a I'm a like I said I'm a total coral fangirl now. So uh before we get started, could you give our listeners a little background about yourself and why you chose to go down the, the coral or, um, uh, marine
0: biology rabbit hole. Sure. Well, actually I was very lucky at a very young age and I got to do my first scientific expedition at the age of 13. That's right. 13 years old. What a challenge to be able to go to look for a location in the Virgin islands for a future marine lab, uh, And from then on, I was hooked with that organism. It is so exciting. But I've also had kind of a varied uh, experience, loving plants, uh, seagrasses, seaweeds, uh, phytoplankton, uh, clams, oysters, shrimp, fish. And that brought me all the way back again through marine ornamentals, that is growing things for the aquarium trade, to grow corals for the aquarium trade instead of them having to be taken from the reef to have somebody's home reef aquarium. And um, I literally was uh, asked by the two grandchildren of Jacques Cousteau, who was my favorite person growing up, uh, why I wasn't growing corals to put back in the ocean instead of to put into pet stores. And I did one of those aha moments and literally left my position at Harbor Branch Oceanographic of, 72 employees, $10 million in programs from running the world's largest clam hatchery, an indoor shrimp hat facility, and marine ornamentals, and training people on recirculating technology so they don't discharge water from aquaculture facilities to start this new uh, coral restoration initiative. And the rest was the last 20 years of some Unique mistakes and breakthroughs that all came through to um, make it where I am now. And uh, AARP said, "I'm not." Quoted me as saying, "I'm not going to retire really until I plant one million corals." And so uh, that's my new logo. It's the name of our new foundation, and it's our mission, our vision, and the recipe. Oh,
1: I just love that and we're definitely going to dive deep into planet a million corals and what your our organization is doing because it's it's really fascinating and super important. Uh but I must ask besides your love for corals or clams do you have a favorite animal or a
0: favorite spot in nature? Uh you know a lot of people have asked me that thinking that I'm going to tell them some fish or some <laughs> shark or or something like that. And it's a scenario where I tell people, I really don't have a, a favorite underwater um, organism. And because if you've ever do- dove at night, you'd understand that actually that underwater world when it's completely dark is, it's kind of a scary place. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I'd feel not knowing it, whether I'm the predator or the prey at any time. But I got a degree also in botany. And I love Uh, the bristlecone pine. And that is one of the pine trees that lives up on a mountain ledge and usually can last for 800 to a thousand years old. So could you imagine being able to have that opportunity of sitting and watching the world go by without really any predators or worries?
1: Yeah, that would be incredible. Uh, I was actually just learning about uh, pulmonaryan's are like these worms that are pretty much have like li- lived forever. So I need I need to talk to my uh, podcast partner Chris and see if we can get a planarian expert on the podcast to uh, talk all about this creature that's pretty much just like lives. It doesn't die, and it's just this world is so amazing. And be- between I mean, plants, fungi, animals, uh, mammals. It's just uh, invertebrates. It's uh it's so fun. And that's why I love the title about the secret lives of corals, because we really you really do get in there. I, I almost felt like I was reading a novel at some points, uh, but it's all true. It's just
0: it's out of this world. And- well, I love the analogy you just made about the planarial worm, because it's a microscopic size worm. You can see it with the naked eye, but it's pretty small, about the size of a pinhead. And it divides by fission into two. So it actually is continuing to grow. And you know what? Corals are exactly the same. However, they're colonial. They stay stuck together. So the original one coral polyp, which is an animal, which has a plant that lives inside it, an algal marine algae, and microbes that live on the outside, not the inside, like our guts, but on the outside mucus, and produces its own rock, uh, continues to divide from a beginning cell to be as big as can be seen from outer space as a a large coral atoll. So, you know, I always tell people, uh, look out Guinness uh, Guinness World Records to the blue whale, which we think is the largest organism, uh, that maybe corals as a colonial uh, organism uh, can beat you. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you touched on a few of my
1: questions uh, I have uh, about corals in general, but can you briefly describe what they are, uh, roughly how many species they are, and the different classifications regarding their reproduction styles?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, one of the reasons of calling it the uh, secret life of corals is because it's fairly well not understood by the general public. Uh, in fact, sometimes people ask me, why are you doing research on corals? Don't we know everything we need to know about those things? And of course the answer is no. And I I get them to answer it. I say, well, can you tell me what a coral is? And they usually say, well, is it a animal? Is it a plant? Is it a microbe? Is it a living rock? And I answer, yes, 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 yes. Check, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, three different phyla, not, not just a couple of, you know, similar classes or, or families, but three different phyla of organisms, uh, all working together as a symbiotic relationship. We really don't see uh, much more than two, usually, of a symbiotic relationship. You know, people know of the, uh, our, our friend Nemo, the, the clownfish and the anemone. Uh, that live together, but they don't really know of three organisms that really are tied together. And that's why um, people don't even know when they see it colored, that that is the plant component, the pigments actually from photosynthesis that is producing that color, the animal is clear. And if those uh, plants leave, a thing we call coral bleaching, which people may have heard of, but not understood, is that the algae leaves and when the algae leaves, you actually see through the clear animal to that bright white uh, calcium carbonate skeleton rock that it makes on its own. And so you're seeing through it that white and people think, oh no, it's bleached like chlorine or something. And it's basically lost its nutritional way of living by way of the sun. Could you imagine if we had Algal plants and our tissue, and we could just lay on the beach, and that would be our way of, you know, gaining our nutrition. It sounds dreamy. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it too. A good excuse <laughs> to go to the beach. And yeah.
1: Like- well, and that's how I was visualizing it when I was reading the book is um, they, the corals with this unique physiology of having this algae, the zooxanthinel, if I'm saying that right.
0: Zoanthellae. Zoanthellae. Zo- mm-hmm. Zoanthellae. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So it's like they have their algae friends and then they have these special microbes and they have microbe friends and that help them pull off these incredible physiological feats of nature, if you will. Uh, It's just incredible. And as you mentioned, when when they are under stress and they do lose their algae friends, uh, the researchers don't really understand a lot about the physiology, or they're still learning about how they get their algae friends, how they, because they're not
0: born with them, right? Yeah, that there's actually two reproductive strategies of corals there's the brooders, mm-hmm. and the brooders actually come with the algae in them. Okay. The broadcast spawners don't. They have. Right. To, yeah. Not sure, whether they engulf it, eat it, pick it up, uh, have sort of an. M- endobiosis of it engulfing in we know very little
1: yeah and what about their microbiome friends because as you mentioned because <laughs> as you mentioned they're not on the inside of the coral like when we think of our human or mammal microbiome in our guts but they're on the outside tissue right so are are they born
0: with their microbe friends or do they acquire those well it's exactly the same uh, the brooders bring it with them from their parents So it's sort of like the analogy I said is that uh, uh, the brooders have much less number produced, but Mm -hmm. they hold them longer and let them give them their zoanthale algae and they give them their coating of, of uh, the microbes that they need. And then uh, they swim not too far away and land and, and start over again. Uh, The other ones uh, don't do that. So it's actually could take uh, a long time for them to get, those bacteria, they're natural bacteria from the wild, but depending on which population, which species, which becomes the dominant will depend on whether it's a healthy one. People know about microbiome in, as you mentioned, in your gut. And it's sort of like the inside out, uh, take your gut inside out. And that's kind of like what a coral polyp looks like. And that actually is something that where their mucus is on that lining of our intestines. And when we get sick, we're not that healthy. And we try, if we're sick and take too many antibiotics, try to get back through yogurt and other cultures to put it back in. Uh, but the coral has a scenario too, that not only does it, when it gets hot, uh, do the algae leave and they start to lose their nutritional component, but the heat also affects some of the microbiome. And some of them change to not necessarily the most beneficial ones. So we know now really why high temperature climate change uh, is affecting corals first, as one of the indicator species, sort of like what they say, the canary in the coal mine, like the poor polar bear, um, is telling us that something is different and something is wrong. And so they've had uh, plenty of years to adapt to this, but over long periods of time. For instance, in the Red Sea, those organisms have been heating up for over 100,000 years. And some of those corals are climate adapted to be able to tolerate the high temperatures without bleaching. It's just that our areas underwater were usually fairly consistent in temperature, salinity, pH, But now we're literally changing our own environmental conditions of not only our atmosphere, the heat, the CO2 also makes its way into the ocean. It's the ultimate location for all CO2, as well as uh, heating up the waters. And the corals are not liking it.
1: Well, and Dr. Vaughn, you touched on coral bleaching, and I think m- most of us have heard about it, and we in we, we vis- can visualize it that it's not a very good thing for a beautiful, colorful coral reef to uh, t- to turn white because they've lost their algae friends and they're not very healthy. Could you touch on why this is an issue that the public could be should be concerned with, and also maybe in general, besides coral bleaching, coral corals are under several threats. Uh, can you talk about what they are and, and why we should save them, like w- what they do for the oceans and for us um, humans?
0: Sure. Uh, well, the bleaching is a kind of complicated arrangement. Well, so is the full, you know, basically symbiotic relationship. It's a plant, an algal plant, a marine plant that lives by the millions inside their tissue not not just on the top of their tissue, inside the organism. And so for that organism to survive, uh, like any good plant, it's got to get some carbon dioxide. It's got to give off some oxygen. It's got to get some nutrients. It's going to produce some, hyd- some carbohydrates. Uh, but when it's inside an animal tissue, it gets a little complicated. Uh, for gases to come in and out from a plant that is open to the air like the leaf of a tree, it's easy. But if you're living inside kind of a gelatinous animal that already has some tissue that it's got to pass through, it's got to get the gases and the materials from the outside of the animal inside. And the reverse sometimes can be com- complicated because we always think of plants giving off oxygen as a byproduct of photosynthesis as a wonderful thing, and we should. I like to sometimes say, do you like to breathe? You should be thanking every other breath for the oceans, which is where most of the oxygen is produced by plants. Now that's produced by seaweeds, sea grasses, uh, phytoplankton, and the algae that's inside of coral reefs. And when that is in perfect harmony, the coral enjoys some of that oxygen. And then uh, like in my tanks and like on a seagrass bed, you can see bubbles of oxygen coming up. On a coral reef in the middle of the day, you can see little bubbles of oxygen coming up. However, if it's too hot, the animal component uh, gets a little lethargic. It can't transport that gas to the outside very efficiently, and it builds up. Now, many people think, too much oxygen can't be a bad thing, but it is. And it can cause basically oxygen poisoning, a number of other radicals to form. And that's not good for the animal that it's inside of. And so whether the, um, somehow I tried to be anthropomorphic, whether the coral actually says, okay, everybody out, you're killing me, you're killing me. Before I die from oxygen poisoning, I'd rather starve to death because that may take me a couple of weeks. So, But if you keep doing this, I'm going to die overnight. So somehow it tells the algae, or somehow the algae says, the conditions in here are terrible. I'm out of here. (laughs) I'm not sure which one. And there's probably going to be some zoologists in animal behavior that are going to not like me anthropomorphizing the coral saying something, or the algae saying. Something. I love it. It gives a good visual. It, it it makes it personal, right? Well, could you imagine thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of algal cells lining up overnight and getting basically spit out and, and ejected out, so that the next morning that the the coral is is white? It's two things. One is it's now does lost its uh. It's first we've given it a fever by a high temperature. Then we've taken away its uh, nutrition. And now that nutrition is also going to stop or hurt the microbes that produce the naturally occurring antibiotic. That's its immune system. So could you imagine us having a fever, going to the hospital, then deciding to keep you hot, uh, take away all your food and, not give, and compromise your immune system? You'd be in trouble. And they are. And so a few days go by if they get more of their food. The temperatures go back to normal; they can slowly get the algae again and be back okay. Uh, too many weeks, and and don't they won't make it. So, could you imagine? Because these things are underwater, they are out of sight and out of mind. And people have seen pictures or heard about coral bleaching. But could you imagine the analogy on land? If we walked outside our house door tomorrow morning to go to work, and you looked out and every blade of green grass had turned white, every tree leaf had turned white, every flower, every bush, every green thing you know of turned stark white. You'd say, what is this? Somebody's got to stop this. Whatever it is, we got to do something now. Now we know that coral bleaching, we thought, happened about once every century. And 100 years can go by and the corals can slowly make it back. Now we've had coral bleaching in the 70s and 80s about once or twice a decade. Now corals are bleaching almost every single year. So it's a big wake-up call. And so um, the wake-up call is, uh, okay, what? how important are those corals if we lost them all? Well, we've lost 50% of the world's corals. And even though the ocean is less than 1% coral reefs, that's a small amount. That's just that little fringe within about 60 feet or so, although there are some deep corals as well, um, we would uh, miss literally 25 to 40 percent of the world's fisheries. Right. Think about it. Yeah. Bottom of the ocean, it's it's like a bare mud or sand bottom, most of the places. But if you have this luxurious habitat with all these crevices and regas rocks and places to hide, it's where most of the Organisms go to both feed, breed, and raise their young. Well, yeah, and I couldn't help but
1: think about corals with all of these hurricanes that are moving on on shores uh, more aggressively. And the healthy coral systems, they can act as a buffer to help potentially stop or not, not stop, but help uh, slow some of the the water coming in from a hurricane. and. Just they besides being beautiful for ecotourism and for the fisheries, I mean, like you said, our the oxygen we breathe depends on them. So I just think the public maybe knows a little bit about core bleaching and why they're you know, why that's bad. But I mean, just they're so important for m- protection uh potential medicinal uses uh i mean i think there's a lot to be discovered with that that we don't even know i mean it's like losing it's like losing the amazon forest before things have even been discovered right
0: Exactly. yeah Yeah. there's many uh species of corals worldwide uh you know in the florida uh keys we have only about 30 species of of corals but in the atlantic there's uh Dozens more. In the Pacific, there's literally hundreds. There's literally thousands of species of corals. And in the deep water corals, one's finding a new species almost every deep water, you know, uh, trawl or, or um, underwater man submersible seeing them. So um, the, the analogy is perfect, uh, except it's probably. Uh, even better that there are more diversity of organisms that could have bioactive compounds underwater than above the water because they live in an environment that has to have some sort of microbial compounds to keep them in a liquid environment from not getting uh, overgrown by every other microbe and every other organism and every other tissue that wants to grow over that would be almost like cancers or tumors. So Uh, It's very interesting that uh, we need to actually see that. And you mentioned, uh, you know, storms. That's probably the newest of the things that people are finally recognizing. You know, we've had, besides climate change having the temperature and, uh, you know, the oceans being more acidic because of that same thing, is that uh, we have more storms and uh, more frequently and higher in intensity. We had uh, a direct hit by a hurricane uh, four years ago here in the Florida Keys. And our our reef is out, out about five miles from here in 30 to 60 feet of water. And out past the reef, uh, the waves were monitored at about 38 feet tall. 38 feet tall. That's,
1: I can't even imagine that.
0: However, it hit the first reef. Our reef friends basically broke the, then we had five miles of patch reefs, more and more uh, lowering of the energy, and we only had four to eight feet, uh, you know, here in the Keys. No home would have been safe with a 38-foot wave coming across it. We were built, you know, pretty strategically for heavy winds, but not for waves like that. Right. So you really have to be aware of being able to live near the coast and be thanking corals for it.
1: Absolutely. And Dr. Vaughn, you mentioned that we've lost over 50% of our corals in the oceans. Are all the coral populations plummeting or are any of them thriving? How does it look? What's the future like?
0: Well, yeah, that's a broad brush globally, uh, but it's a startling one. 50%. Uh, here in Florida, a, a good reef was 25 to 40% hard coral percent cover. In the past now it's three to seven percent wow some cases it's doing worse than others even in places like the red sea uh we'll notice you know maybe five or ten percent losses probably related to it so even though they may have you know over 50 percent coral cover you start losing five percent it's a wake-up call even in that area as well so the good news going forward to give some hope into all of this uh, uh, doom and gloom part is that uh, the other half of the corals that have survived literally have mother nature to thank for being naturally selected for having some sort of resistance to the disease or resilient to things of temperature and disease resilient meaning they may get the disease just like we may get uh, a virus but they survive it they bounce back or resistant to it, uh, meaning they don't even get the disease. We know that there are almost every species has genotypes that have these attributes. And so we just need to make more of those. We're not doing anything as far as genetic manipulation, at least not yet. Uh, but we can be doing something in the future that everybody on land has done with breeding dogs better, breeding horses better, breeding tomatoes better. And we will have soon the technology to do some faster uh, breeding because of this new technology called microfragmentation, as well as refusion back together.
1: Well, absolutely. And that's actually a good lead in uh, to perhaps talk about what you'd coin as your Eureka Mistake. As you're learning more about corals in the laboratory and how to grow them more or less and then um, outplant them, I wondered, I want to hear all about your Eureka mistake because as a scientist, of course, in the lab, I have made tons of mistakes and for, unfortunately none of them all they all just slowed down my thesis and dissertation work. There was no Eureka in there. Uh, <laughs> however, now that I'm working with a lot of students, I uh, Sometimes they always they get worried if 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 something isn't going exactly right or they think that they should be perfect. And I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, honestly, I usually in the lab or even in writing, I learn more from the mistakes I make as long as they're not too detrimental uh than I actually do from doing things right. and so i I would like you to touch on that mistake, but uh, perhaps a little prior to that, if you could help us learn a little bit more about the general coral restoration process uh which species you do propagate i know i believe the staghorn and elkhorn are some species you've worked with uh i think you could describe that and then bucket babies and coral tree nurseries and how all this led to your your de- the defining moment for the future of corals
0: yes uh it's, it's kind of uh fortuitous that i had kind of a background in in uh, hatching clams and oysters and growing systems, you know, that can produce them. And when I came down to the Keys to see what people were doing with corals, uh, cause it had been a couple of decades since my first work with corals and people were trying to uh, basically do restoration, but with only one species, the fast growing staghorn coral. And it's just what it sounds like. It's the stag, looks like a deer's antlers and the moose antlers or the elkhorn corals. That's just one uh, genus that we have two species of. And it grows very fast. And it has has had a way of being so fragile that in once in a century storms, it could break into many pieces. If the pieces landed in the mud, they were, I would say, call it toast. And uh, if they landed in a hard spot, They could, after a while, grow and reattach. And that's how they uh, basically spread out, almost like a tumbleweed, you know, dropping seeds here and there. And so I I said, why is everybody only doing this one species in the field? And they said, because we can. And I said, well, why don't you do the other 28 species, which are the big, massive corals that actually build the reefs? And they said, well, um," I said, why don't you do a hatchery? like I used to do with clams and oysters and fish. They said, oh, Dr. Vaughn, you you have been away from corals for too long. We actually, when you did corals in 1966, we didn't even know corals had a reproductive cycle sexually. And it wasn't until 1985 that a colleague of mine uh, from the Great Barrier Reef discovered it at night. And they give off these looks like a blizzard of gamete bundles underwater in one specific time, at one specific date, at one certain time of the year after a full moon. And uh, only one in a million makes it every hundred years. (laughs) And I thought, this is crazy. Um, But I'm gonna give it a try. And so we did, we brought some gametes in from the Elkhorn coral, about 30,000 gametes. And we got about 11 to make it. And now that doesn't sound good if you didn't hear the story that only one in a million makes it every hundred years. But we had it. But after six months, I could now start to show you outside of a microscope what it looked like because it was so small. And then by a one year old, it was about the size of a head of a pen. You could see with the naked eye, but it wasn't growing very fast. And it took three years to get up to the size of a golf ball. Wow. And I got dejected that this was way too slow. And I moved them to the very bottom of the glass aquarium and forgot about them until I went to do the typical thing we do in the process now in a land nursery is we regularly move corals to a brand new clean tank and then we clean that tank. And then we let them go for a while. And then when it gets dirty, we move them to an another clean tank and clean that tank, sort of hopscotching through the, through the tanks of a nursery. And uh, basically it was a scenario, I went to go move one and just like those staghorn corals on a hard surface grew on attached, this one did. I didn't know it and I yanked it and I heard a crack and it broke into a dozen pieces and it had a hole in it the size of about a nickel or a dime And I thought, oh, boy,
1: boy. that's not good.
0: I just killed the first test tube baby coral of the world. Oh, no. And uh, that's not what happened. (laughs) Right. Oh, a few weeks later, I went to check the big piece and it had already grown back that that tissue that had taken three years to grow. And I ran back across the lab to see the little pieces, which I thought never would have made it. And they all grew. And so... I took a scalpel and I did it again like a good scientist to replicate it and spent the next few years trying it with some of my other assistants and technicians, Chris Page. Uh, We went through the whole list of species and it works with them all. And so it's a game changer for corals for two reasons. One is that we get to, instead of taking a coral the size of a golf ball, waiting till it gets to cut it in half and waiting three years till it gets up again in size, we cut it into 20 to 100 micro fragments using a specialized diamond saw that is meant for making coral jewelry into little pieces for earrings and so on. But we cut the live coral with its tissue and its skeleton. We make dozens, if not you know, near 50 or 100 small pieces, and they all are triggered to grow back up to size in weeks or months instead of years.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you.
0: Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. it's just incredible. It's a game changer for corals. Uh, and it's what I like to call a wound healing response. Well,
1: that's what I was going to ask. It seems like, I mean, of course, I always think of vertebrates and the mammals I work with. But obviously, if we cut them in half, that's that's the end. Uh, so I'm wondering, you're yeah, you're you have this live coral and you're you're micro fragmenting it, uh, and so there's live tissue there. Why doesn't it die, or do you do you, do you understand the do you know the physiology of what's going on that not only it survives? but it grows and it grows way faster.
0: Yes. And so a couple of theories. One is that we know that we can cut it that small because coral polyps are usually pretty Ooh. small, uh, not much bigger than the planaria or the size of a uh, head of a pin. And so as long as we have at least one full coral polyp in there instead of a fraction of one, that's how small we can go. So if a one of the sp- you know, small stony coral polyps, like for Elkhorn, which is very tiny ones, we can get a hundred pieces from something the size of a quarter uh, because they're very small. And so they all go back really fast because we think it's a response like your skin. I usually tell children, if you were as clumsy as I was learning to skateboard or ride a bike, um, I always found a a quarter-sized piece of my elbow or my knee uh, stayed on the sidewalk. And your skin doesn't grow fast at all unless you have a wound. And then it heals itself and grows back within weeks. And the coral we think is doing the same thing. We've actually you know, tracked some compounds that I show it's signaling uh, something for, for that growth. Um, and so uh, we think it's evolved. Because most of these other 28 species of the massive corals, you know, don't break like a fragile staghorn coral. Uh, but we think it's related to a response from guess what? Another animal that takes a bite out of corals about the same size as a microfragment, a parrotfish.
1: A yeah, parrotfish. We sing a song in my family. It's, um, I wanna thank you for pooping out sandy beaches. About the parrotfish, it's from one of the uh, the kids' animal shows, and so we just we think it's hilarious that we're. Uh, I mean, it's it's physiologically somewhat correct because those darn parrotfish, which are beautiful, I love snorkeling and seeing them, but they do. Yeah, they will they will eat the corals, and then they I guess they digest them, and they. Poop out sandy beaches. I don't know, but I love that song.
0: You're a good singer, so maybe you can sing at the very end of this song. (laughs) The Mm. the podcast. Yeah, uh, you're right. They take a bite out of both the microbes, the uh, algae, and the and the polyp animal. That's their nutrition. And they basically grind up and, and deposit pieces of its calcium carbonate skeleton. And that's the white sandy beaches you see in the Caribbean where there's corals. Exactly. Much more, much more scientifically accurate. So thank you, Dr. Vaughn. But, so, but I well, love the visual on it, right? I'm a visual person as yeah, well. So. Think about it. If somebody came up and took a bite out of your skin, what would you want to happen? Did or something out, out of the rainforest. Well, if you're another plant, you'd want to take care of that space grow into it and expand well the coral wants to close up that wound so that not another coral can land on it algae sponges barnacles whatever takes that space and so it heals it up very quickly we're utilizing that naturally evolved response to make more and the fast growth happens for about one to two years so we can grow something up the size of a three-year-old in a few months. And then here comes the crazy part. You ready? I've got my seatbelt on. Yes. Okay. So, you know, if we cut 20 clones from a piece and in three to six months, it grows back up to that same size. Mm -hmm. And we put them too close together and they touch each other. They don't have the war and the fighting like one of my chapters. Yes, they, and that we, we will touch on that a little bit because that was
1: a real page turner, the coral wars. But I'll let, I want to finish this first. So, so,
0: so fighting, which they usually will do. Right. If it's the same species, if it's the same genetic strain or genotype, it will think it's itself. Ah. And it will say, oh, that's my skin or that's me. I'm not going to fight it. And they connect back to grow back together in what we call fusion. And so we can now take 20 pieces from, a, we can take a coral the size of a golf ball, cut it into 20 pieces. In six months, have 20 golf ball sized pieces, put them together in the size of a medium to large pizza and let them grow in the next two years so that that golf ball or pepperoni size of a pizza analogy grows together. We can produce a basketball sized coral head in two years that would have taken 25 to 100 years to grow. Wow, that is incredible! Game changer for corals. They need it
1: completely. And so, in about two years, you have this this basketball size coral that's healthy and it's in the lab. And is that when you take it out to the open water to outplant it, or how does that work?
0: Well, the process has been up until this time that we plant the twenty pieces out there. Okay. We find- A dead coral head of the same species, let's say a brain coral the size of a basketball, uh, of which there's too many opportunities to find. Unfortunately,
1: right. Yeah.
0: Drill holes in it and we plant, just like a hair transplant, these 20 identical pieces. And within two years, they grow together and basically reskin new living tissue on a dead coral skeleton. And guess what happens? For some reason, corals can signal each other, communicate somehow, and somehow they know we're, that size matters and not age. And so they'll say, "Hey, we're the size of a mature adult coral colony. Why don't we start acting like a colony and start being reproductive? So even though most corals can are not reproductive for you know decades, uh, these corals that literally can be reproductive if they're the size of a couple decade old coral, even if they're at the age of a kindergartner,
1: that is incredible, and and so they're in the lab for about uh, the first or living, you know, like you said, in tanks uh, that you, you care for. Is it only for about six months, bef- and then they go to the open water
0: as yeah. the fragments? But what we found now, and we've been practicing with it, and it's working, is we go ahead and do that fusion on the land. And we only have to wait about another three to six months to actually have that two year growth process happen in the lab. So in nine months, we can produce a coral head the size of a, uh, you know, a melon and plant that out. Wow. Planting what would have been 20 to 100 microfragments in the field, all done on land and dry land with your hands wet in any sort of weather without a boat, without having to uh, snorkel, And without getting salt water in your eyes.
1: (laughs) I do love the salt water in my mouth and my hair, though, I must say. I'm a big, big fan of that, but not necessarily my eyes, especially when I'm uh, snorkeling or diving. Uh, And so I know that this is happening uh, in the Florida Keys, uh, where your your home is. And of course, the the moat out of the Keys. Where else is this uh, restoration and outplanting happening?
0: Well, after I retired from Moat Marine Lab, I just went down the street where the uh, Boy Scouts of America have a high uh, uh sea base. And we set up a small system there for as a STEM education system. And they're today planting a couple hundred. They have 20,000 corals now, uh, you know, grown by scouts. We also um, are making now what we call transportable coral nurseries in a box. Um, A lot of people don't know how to do what sometimes takes some engineering time of sizing pipes and pumps and filters and so on, or access to buying and purchasing them in other countries. So we do all that work here in the States. Uh, We build a unit to produce 10,000 or 50,000 corals, and we get it operating. Then we take it apart and slide it inside a shipping container and send it to another location around the world so they can learn how to do it as well. We have one going to the Coral Gardeners group in uh, Marea next to Tahiti uh, next month. Mm -hmm. We have one going to Puerto Rico in uh, another two months. And we have uh, uh, some equipment going to the Maldives in the Indian Ocean uh, shortly after.
1: That's just fantastic. Uh, And I definitely want to touch on uh, your Plant a Million Corals Foundation. But before we do that, I have to talk just briefly about this book that you've written. Um, I was lucky enough to get a copy and be able to read it. And it is a fascinating page, Turner. It's called The Secret Life of Corals, Sex, War, and Rocks that Don't Roll. We've talked a little bit about their secret lives with their algae and microbe friends and the reproduction Uh If you wouldn't mind, if you could touch on this war, because I will say I loved all of it, but I definitely found myself staying up too late in bed reading the chapter on coral wars. And it was just a fascinating, fascinating uh, page turner. So without giving away too much of the plot, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on that.
0: Well, you got to kind of picture a coral colony Mm -hmm. is made up of many many polyps that covers what looks like, you know, a garden of moss or grass. And, and just like any other tree that doesn't want to be grown over by another tree, or just like a, a different type of weed uh, wants to grow over a nice green lawn, or some of your flowers that you want, the same thing happens in the secret world underwater. And most of it happens at night. And so what happens is these polyps don't need to come out. Uh, to be waving to anything else that wants a nibble on it, like a parrotfish. And some of the light, they can stay inside their little, what's called a coralite, and stay protected, and then come out at night to uh, be able to maybe get a little bit of filter feeding for some zooplankton that might be passing by. And it's then when they could touch the polyp next to them, because they're a colony. And if that polyp, it recognizes, just like Sort of the tentacle of a CNM and will touch another tentacle of a CN and it won't sting itself because it recognizes that. And in fact, if enough of that mucus from the tentacle gets on a clownfish, it won't sting the clownfish because the clownfish is, is fooling it by wearing a micro mucus of it. And so the same thing can happen if next door it touches and says, Oh my goodness, that's not me, that's another. Something. It's another coral. It wants to grow over the top of me. Uh, I'm going to be in big trouble if I don't do something. So they change, and the little tiny tentacles, which may be only a millimeter or less, can stretch out to a couple inches in length. This is like, crazy. Yeah, like uh, this long whip. Mm-hmm. And whip it out there with and test what's near me that I can sense or smell. And if it touches another, coral, it can start to sting it with its stinging cells, just like the jellyfish uh, phyla um, uh, classes that is uh, typical of being able to not necessarily just capture prey, but to fend itself off in, in, in battle. And so all night long, you might have this battle back and forth between the two different species. And... In next morning, you can see who may have, uh, you know, been a little bit of a winner, sort of like a football uh, team moving downfield farther and farther.
1: <laughs> Retreating, on the,
0: on yeah. The okay. line, and the other ones, you know, being pushed back. Yeah. If that doesn't work. They then have another t- thing, which is basically uh, spitting out its mesentery. That's sort of like regurgitating some of its digestive system, spitting up or vomiting on your neighbor, but in it having stinging cells and and some digestive and literally trying to digest your opponent, Uh, sort of like a slime ball uh, thrown out there, and it could be a demise. And so there's these underwater wars that end up in the day when we usually get to see them. Resulting in one winner, one loser. Sometimes a truce, sometimes a demilitarized zone, and they both just keep their space. Yeah,
1: I was really fascinated by the truce and where you could really see the line uh, on some of the photos. The the book is filled with beautiful photos, uh, and of course, a few devastating ones, some of the coral bleaching and whatnot. But uh, yeah, the photos of the war where it's like, wow, that's that was the line, and they have their like you said, the little demilitarized zone and just when we, the the physiology is just incredible, uh, and I also th- I feel like they that us humans have a lot to learn about them, and and it's just I mean I don't know if I want to necessarily vomit on an opponent, but in the same way I like how they they figure it out and have a truce uh, eventually, so yeah. and they only and of course and they only war at night time, so they're they're somewhat respectful and uh, following certain war treaties, but just. And that's just one of the chapters in the book. I mean, I uh, we're, we're not able to touch on all the content, but that one was just really, really fascinating to me, uh, as they all were. Uh, and I'd like to spend a little more uh, time with you talking about your foundation, uh, Plant a Million Corals. And like you said, you're not retiring until you plant a million and hopefully more, because uh, you probably won't retire. And I love that. Uh, it's very inspiring if you could touch on your mission and how purchasing the book, which we'll talk about too towards the end of the podcast, but how pur- purchasing this beautiful book helps support Plant a Million Coral's mission.
0: Yeah, it, it actually helps support it financially by a portion of the proceeds from this book will go towards helping to plant corals around the world. And that may be training people how to do it or helping them afford some of the equipment or, or workshops uh, for them to learn how to do so. Uh, the other is I... Really did this book because I had finished a year earlier writing the first real comprehensive book on what's called active coral restoration. Okay. New Technologies for a changing planet. Oh, that'll it, be my that'll be my holiday read. Yeah, six hundred pages. Okay, I have I have a pretty good break, uh, a couple weeks off uh, in between well, semesters. Pictures and graphs and and uh, figures, the wonderful. And eleven chapters on exactly the different stages of what, like we discussed, what a hatchery is, what a nursery is, uh, genetics, how that helps, and and all. Then there's eleven chapters of case studies from around the world, of places where this has worked or not worked, so people can see firsthand whether they want to grow corals on a tree, as we call it, or where they want to. Sure, come. the coral tree. Mm-hmm grow it on a a table or they want to directly outplant. And uh, I realized that we had, through COVID, gotten 72 co-authors to sit down and actually get this book out. Even though I wrote eight of the chapters myself, uh, it got out there as the first work meant for students, meant for practitioners, meant for marine resource managers. And as soon as I finished the book, I said, I missed the boat with the general public. If the general public does not know how awesome corals are and that we're losing them and that there's a way forward that they can do to help out, then uh, the corals may be in vain. Sure. And so uh, I wanted to do something that really had my voice like we're talking today in script. And so that it would be also hopefully do an audio book uh, the same way. Only if you'll sing as part of it. that's Yeah, that. teamwork. Yes,
1: absolutely. We'll, we'll come up with a, a little bit more of a coral jingle as well. We don't want to focus too much on the parrotfish. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> that was the reason. And so if we can show thousands of people that there are, like in my last chapter, 31 things that you can do to help save corals, you don't have to go out there and help me plant, but that's an option. You don't have to come down to the land nursery and help me make more corals, although that's an option, but you can give to a foundation that's doing that. You can live, you know, lower down the food chain. You can use less of a, you know, carbon emitting car. You you can do all of those steps and those make the big difference for the corals. So if we don't have people have some hope of what they can do, that this is something that is doable, you know, it's like... Uh, Acid rain in the Midwest. Everybody thought there's nothing we can do, and we solved it within 10 years. Right. Good. Yeah. We can do this. this. It's going to take time, but if we all don't jump on the bandwagon, the corals are the canary in the coal mine that are telling us something's wrong. I want to make sure that we all don't wake up when they're gone, but before that, because as the ocean goes, so does mankind. The world can live without humans and probably fairly well, but we can't live without our oceans. And so and the oceans aren't the same without the corals there either. So we need to wake this, make this a wake up call and hopefully, um, you know, something that people can get an imagination of what corals are like hidden under the sea in this secret world and have an awesome for organisms like we all should have.
1: Well, and I think your book, "The Secret Life of Corals," really does that. Uh, it's it's a fascinating read. I learned a lot. It's uh, but it's not too over the top as far as I didn't have to do too much background uh, reading. Uh, and it's beautiful pictures, and and it's inspirational. Which, of course, in this day and age, with global climate change and um, basically so many species becoming either endangered or have the threat of becoming endangered. It can be a lot of a uh, doom and gloom, and I love the last couple chapters of your book, talking, of course, about the foundation Planet a million corals, but also that there there is hope, right? Like Dr. Vaughn, I mean, corals, uh, whether it's through restoration projects or marine protection policies, uh, is is there hope for them? You th-
0: absolutely. It's it's not too late, but if we wait until everybody knows it's too late then of course it is and i like to tell people that it's not necessarily that 28 species of corals here in the florida keys it would be a shame that we lost all those species but it's hundreds of species of fish and thousands of species of invertebrates that need a living reef to exist if we wait till all corals are gone, and let's say we make a gene bank somewhere with a couple of specimens in an aquarium or a zoo, and then in 100 years, we try to bring them back. If we have lost all those other thousands of species of fish that require it, we'd have to start with a brand new earth and a brand new ocean to bring those back.
1: Right? Yeah, the time to act is now that is for sure. And so who are some of your local, you mentioned, like, of course, the Boy Scouts, and I just love that. I'm going to get my boys down there for sure. Uh, but who are some of your local uh, collaborators and then, of course, nationally and international that you're working with?
0: Yeah, we work with the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, the Florida Fish and Wildlife, Moat Marine Lab, the Coral Restoration Foundation, um, uh, and a number of other reef renewal. is another new one doing some great work. And there's probably going to be dozens more because people are learning through our workshops and and seeing this and getting excited. There's literally hundreds of students now going to school to try to be a practitioner like they would to have a job in marine biology. And hopefully there will be thousands of jobs in growing corals, managing reefs and protected areas and, uh, you know, actually planting them as well.
1: Well, absolutely. I have the the zoo husbandry background, and my husband works at a, a a college that works with students to get their associate's degree in zookeeping. But I can visualize even something bigger where we could get students a a couple years to get a, a degree or being being credited in uh, learning how to help uh, breed and plant a million corals because you're. We definitely do need that science and we need it more available for students that have interest in it.
0: Yeah. And in fact, we work with most of the bigger universities Mm -hmm. in Florida, but also the uh, College of the Florida Keys actually has a program for uh, basically marine management as Mm -hmm. well as uh, coral aquaculture, as well as marine aquaculture for the aquarium trade. Excellent. Good to know. We will we'll definitely put that
1: on our show notes, too, for um, our listeners. So if they are interested in um, perhaps uh, going down that really awesome uh, career path, that would be very, 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 very cool. Uh, and and being, with that being said, with all your wisdom and being just this rock star choral guy for so many years, I. Uh, What advice do you have for people that are interested perhaps in a career in marine biology, of course, or corals, uh, or saving the oceans? Um, What would you tell them?
0: Yeah, it's it's a very simple one. I became master of the obvious when I started looking through dozens, if not hundreds of applications from people from college uh, that wanted to do an internship because they couldn't get a job yet because they didn't have any real world experience. And almost all of them have A's and B's, like their parents tell them that they need to do. But if I have a hundred applicants that all have A's and B's, then the only thing I have to go on is two things. One is I usually want a letter of you know why you want to do this, and everybody has the same letter. It's it's as if they shared it, and it goes something like this: I was walking down the beach, and then I saw a turtle come ashore, and I realized that's really what I want to do for the rest of my life. Or it's a porpoise or a dolphin or a seabird or a whatever. It's the same inspiration. Mm-hmm. And so I tell them that I still can't decide. But if you do an internship to see if you really want to do corals, and then you volunteer doing that, and then you do a special project with your professor, and you go on and do it, you know, maybe a trip abroad to see how it's done in other places and help and assist and volunteer... You list all of those things on your resume. Now your resume comes to the top of the list of two things. One is you've done all those things and you still like it. Yes, 100%. Right. Yes, you've been in the field. You haven't quit. And, and you now know what you know, want to do and what you don't want to do. And now you have a wonderful diversity fied uh, curriculum vitae or, or resume to show people. And they said, this person's a go-getter
1: exactly no I love that I always always try to encourage students to really volunteer do internships the cool thing is a lot of them are kind of short-lived three six months nine months so you can dabble with it and see see if you like the long hours the late nights or uh if you're uh, pr- wanting to study primates do you like being in in the jungle with looking up at the trees for X amount of hours some people love it some people don't, and so it's really a great way to to see if it if it's meant for you. and And you might start off with one internship uh, or externship, and then decide I like this part, but not that part. And so, yeah, it's a it's a it's definitely some very very great advice. And it sounds like Plant a Million Trees and some of your other collaborators are providing that opportunity for students uh, as I mean, younger
0: than high school. It sounds like definitely younger than college. Yes. And it's, you know, it's one of those scenarios. You and I both were lucky that as biologists, we got to be paid as biologists and got a job in it. And that's yeah. few and far between. How many people have you met that said, oh, I wanted to be a biologist, but I have, have having to do something because I had to get a job. To pay the
1: bills, right. Mm-hmm.
0: But now that's not the case. Now the case is there are jobs in doing restoration with whether it's forest or underwater forests like corals, or whether it's communications like you're doing in telling the story of these great creatures, uh, and what they're like. And so we all can have jobs in the field. We just don't need to give up. So I I may write another book in the future. And it because I have so many people said, I wanted to be a marine biologist, but I had to be an accountant because (laughs) But the name of the book is going to be, so you want to be a marine biologist, huh? Oh, here's how you can, even if you're retired. Here's right. how you can volunteer. Here's how you can be a citizen scientist. It's not too late. We need your accounting experience as well. I we was got- gonna say, yeah, for your yeah to help your foundation.
1: Uh, that's, I mean, you're brilliant at many things, but perhaps accounting is not one of them and so it's it would you yeah you're you're more useful in the field in in education and if somebody can help you uh with your accounting or your website i know uh for us my podcast partner and i uh we do a decent job at the website but we've definitely had some volunteers that have Beefed it up and made it much more user friendly, and just, uh, yeah, I mean that's not the lane that I specialize in, and it takes a, it takes a village and all sorts of talents. And I think if we are going to save corals and the species inhabit oceans, or for the forests on land, it's gonna it's gonna be this collective, collaborative effort, not just the the field biologists are cool, like of course we love that, uh, but or the marine biologists, but there's I think there's many different ways to help.
0: We do, and as a last sort of. A comment you know we really have to be shepherds of the rest of these creatures that are on here we they can't really respond you know to climate change that we've caused so we've got to be the ones to step up and help conserve some of these organisms help look at alternatives to not hurt them because we're their shepherds and they're relying on us
1: absolutely absolutely dr Vaughn. and now i must ask a really really important question how do we get our hands on this incredible book, The Secret Lives of Corals, Sex, War, and Rocks Don't Roll?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked that. It, it's coming out on both Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Okay. It's out on November 15th, but I think they already have a lot of pre-sales uh, there. So uh, uh, if it's before uh, November 15th, don't be afraid to log on and, and be in line. If it's after November 15 and they're waiting for, for more books to come, make sure you get on sooner so that you can get one of these wonderful things. By the way, I think it's a wonderful gift for your friends and your family. Uh, this is a great Christmas present uh, and you can help them. You can help the corals in the world by giving them a book and Absolutely, to changes too.
1: Absolutely, because the money goes back into Plant a Million Corals and all of this incredible work that Dr. Vaughn and his staff have been working on. And so the website is plantamillioncorals.org. And is that where we can find the book
0: then? And uh, Yes. okay. Or you, you can just Google that title mm-hmm. and it'll come up with Amazon and Barnes and & Noble as well awesome. So you can also just Google the
1: secret lives of corals and it'll come up on Amazon and you can put your order in for your holiday gifts for yourself. Make sure you're gifting yourself one because it is just a beautiful, beautiful read. I I always read before bedtime and I'm, I'm, I'm a busy person and I'm usually tired. And most books I get like one or two pages in and then I, of course, pass out. I will tell you, there are many nights where I stayed up late Turning the pages, completely fascinated, talking at six in the morning with my husband about, did you know that blah, 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 blah? And uh, in, and of course, tired in the morning because I stayed up too late reading, but what a great, what a great way to stay up too late, right? Uh so. Uh, Dr. Vaughn, do you, besides your website, plantamillioncorals.org, do you have any other social media? Uh, are you guys on Facebook or Instagram or other ways that our listeners could uh, follow the updates, not only of Plant a Million Corals, but also the secret lives of corals uh, as it's uh, going to be uh, coming, um, being uh, dropped here soon?
0: Sure. You can do Dr. David Vaughn at uh, Facebook or uh, LinkedIn. And then we have a Instagram for plant a million corals. Perfect. Well, like definitely am
1: getting you guys a follow. I love Instagram for all, uh, all things, animals and conservation and science. So this has just been a wonderful, uh, wonderful time talking with you and learning and uh, your, your, a coral rock star conservationist in my mind. And I love your Eureka mistake and how it is basically changing the future in a good way for corals. And so I think myself and us listeners out there, we definitely need to keep supporting your mission at plant a million corals uh, because there's going to be great things happening and we can hopefully help you along the way. And I will be excited to see what other books you write in the future.
0: Sounds good. It's been a pleasure to be on board you're you're a wonderful host and uh after the first of the year we'll be open for visitors at the farm in the keys come on down and uh uh, volunteer or see what the corals are like bring your book and i'll i'll autograph it for you i love it i
1: will definitely i want to bring my boys down there for sure and is that information on your facebook page or more on the plant a million corals website
0: i think it's on all of them but i think awesome some of it's not as specific of hours and times because we plan on on being eligible for visitors really after the first of the year.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, we will be down there and then uh, uh, I'll have to tell all the listeners about it. And we're definitely going to keep following you, Dr. Vaughn, and your organization. And you are not allowed to retire. Uh, I think I t- think we take that million corals and we multiply it by 10 or 100. And, and then we'll start talking about you retiring.
0: Well, thanks. That's a good challenge. And by the way, I own the website called Plant a Billion Corals.
1: Now you're talking. All right. Well, have a wonderful holiday season. All of our listeners, please make sure you check out the Secret Lives of Corals, Sex, War, and Rocks That Don't Roll. Uh, Give Dr. Vaughn a follow on Facebook and, of course, on social media uh, and or their website, Follow. plant a million corals. So thank you, Dr. Vaughn. I definitely will be staying in touch and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Perfect.